Welcome to this episode of Clarity and Collaboration for the Community of Climate Changemakers. This is the final in a series that begins with clarity and today ends with the changemakers. My guest is Christian Faber. All of his links are in the show notes. May I suggest you consider buying his books, Googling his talks, or following him on social media? He is definitely worth your time. And if you've not listened to the first two episodes, please listen to them now. Else this particular episode is not going to make much sense. Christian Faber is a modern-day economist, a writer, and a university lecturer. He is based in Austria, and he's the initiator of two movements, Economy for the Common Good and the Cooperative for the Common Good. He has written three books thus far, and each one has not only been a bestseller, but has also won several awards. In the first episode, he introduced us to his concept of the common good. In the second episode, he gave real-life examples of how incorporating his ideas about the common good has been integrated into the culture of a handful of countries. We begin this episode with his views about what happens once a critical mass of case studies and applications is reached. And then it gets very real very quickly. And uh, once there are many of them, uh, also the wealthiest <laughs> citizens of the nation will will be ready to start uh, conversations how to limit uh, inequality because they see that if inequality is unlimited, we will have people uh, like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Bill Gates who have billions uh, and uh, billions of uh, billions and billions. And this is just not healthy for a society. We have very clear, scientific evidence that uh, societies are best off if we allow a certain degree of inequality. Not everybody should be totally equal. That's socialism and that doesn't work either. That's the opposite extreme. But if you allow unlimited inequality, like in capitalism, that's also extremely unhealthy. <laughs> it's undemocratic and uh, it worsens all of a society's uh, public health indicators from life expectancy to happiness, including the rich. That's very maybe surprising for the rich. They would not admit it possibly, but we know it from psychology, from neurobiology, from, uh, from happiness research, that even the richest are not happy due to their wealth. But uh, we cannot force them. We cannot force them to these insights. But what we can do one day is after intense discussion of everybody, and we should not ask the richest if they're ready to be less rich. One day we should uh, make democratic tax laws, which uh, which introduce a ceiling of how much one person can earn in one hour. And uh, the very practical proposal of economy for the common good is that we ask the people where they would limit the highest income in relation to the minimum wage. And I have done this in... Uh, almost 30 countries so far. And uh, I I don't make any proposal on my own. I only ask the people where they would limit inequality if they could do so, if they could um, draft a law that limits inequality in terms of the highest income being a maximum multiple, a maximum multiple of the minimum wage. And of course, the proposals are very different. <laughs> Some say there should, there should be no inequality at all, and others say there should be no limit to inequality. Why should there be? <laughs> and others say, well, uh, there should be some inequality, but only uh, up to a reasonable level, uh, such as 
maybe five times, seven times, 10 times, 12 times, 20 times, 30 times, and then we vote. <laughs> and uh, today in contemporary democracies, we are used to vote upon only one proposal, yes or no. And then everybody has to be in favor of one proposal or against. Uh, that was in Switzerland. In Switzerland, uh, the young socialists proposed that the highest incomes should be maximum 12 times the lowest incomes in a company. And the Swiss population voted against this proposal. But they pro voted against this proposal for the most diverse reasons and motives. Some voted against factor 12 as a maximum factor of inequality because uh, for them that was um, much too high. <laughs> they, they desired a, a lower uh, um, degree of inequality. And others, vo others voted against because for them it was too low. <laughs> they wanted factor 20 or 50 or 100 <laughs> instead. <laughs> and there were people, I even met people who said, well, 12 is actually reasonable. I would support that. But that proposal came from the young socialists. I'm not a socialist, so I voted against. <sighs> and you see, it's, it's a flawed method. And that's why we promote a method that has been created by two mathematicians of the University of Graz in Austria. And they say, let's, uh, let's allow several proposals, like 5 and 7 and 10 and 12 and 20 and 30 and 50 and 100. And then let's vote upon all proposals, all relevant proposals. Usually, uh, uh, people do not propose more than 10 proposals. So the they usually vote between five and 10 alternatives, including the most extreme ones, including factor one, and including an unlimited inequality. And now comes the result. <laughs> Almost everywhere in the world, <laughs> including the United States and uh, at the mo at poorest countries, uh, the winning proposal, and sorry, I forgot something. The winning proposal is not that one that gathers uh, the highest amount of um, votings, but the winning proposal is that one that generates uh, the lowest level of resistance. Oh my God, I, I I have to explain that because if you don't do it, it's a it's a little bit a tiny little bit theoretical, but it's it's very um, convincing if you do it. Um, a new law, any new law is restricting our freedom to a certain degree that's unavoidable still we 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 create and adopt new laws because if we didn't the loss of freedom would be even higher that's why uh, a law is a mechanism to minimize the loss of freedom and if every possible law hurts maybe the the wisest law most intelligent law is that one that hurts the least the least that one that generates the least resistance because it generates the least pain. And okay. that's why we measure the pain with all proposals on the table and the resistance against all proposals on the table according to the pain. And the outcome is just um, enlightening because the outcome is that we have a valley of resistance with peaks on each side of the valley, the mountain peaks, extreme resistance against full equality, which I frame as socialism, and same extreme resistance against the opposite mountain of capitalism, which I, uh, which I um, frame as unlimited inequality. And the bottom of the valley in the middle, in between, where the resistance is the lowest, where the pain is the softest, 
is usually around factor 10, <laughs> which means people would vote in favor of inequality, but just uh, of a reasonable level. And the most reasonable level of the maximum possible inequality between the highest and the lowest incomes, according to people's minds and hearts, is around factor 10. Maybe in some countries it would be factor 7, maybe in other countries it would be factor 12 or 20. Doesn't matter, because it's a very reasonable factor anyway, compared to today. I'm from Austria. In my country, the, the current factor is 1,500 times. In Germany, it's 60,000 times. And in the US, it's 360,000 times. <laughs> wow. Do you ever, do, do you see a time in your model where, where most of the inequities can be removed? You mean inequities in income, in, in wealth? In, in, in wealth, in, um, in power. race, in power, in gender. Do, do, do you see that that will be basically almost nothing? Or, or what level are you seeing that will uh, sort of mount yes. out to? Okay, I, I would distinguish two different kinds of uh, inequality. Okay. Um, I, I would definitely try, or the model definitely proposes to uh, lower inequality as uh, uh, as concerning human dignity to zero. <laughs> there should be no no difference whatsoever uh, in terms of gender, race, uh, sexual orientation, religious orientation, um, even vaccination status. If I can add that one. Uh, no, no distinction and no discrimination uh, on base of any of these factors. Um, as for economic inequality, uh, I would not go to zero. Uh, zero inequality would mean that uh, everybody earns the same, everybody owns the same, and all corporations uh, are of equal size. And of course, that is overshooting. Uh, so what we are proposing as an alternative to unlimited uh, inequality in income, unlimited inequality in wealth, personal wealth, unlimited inequality in the size of corporations is uh, limited uh, inequality. Factor 10 uh, in income, in property, that's a, that's a, a by far trickier question, <laughs> but I can give a quick answer because this is just a one-hour introductory interview. Um, if if you try to search for a reasonable threshold, what could be the criterion for a reasonable threshold? And the criterion for a reasonable threshold uh, is uh, when is a person so rich, meaning so powerful, that usually he, sometimes she, can buy a TV station, can buy a, a law firm, can buy a political campaign. And... Um, Maybe with uh, with one with one with one million dollar you can buy neither of these. With one hundred million dollars you can already buy any of these. So it should be somewhere in between one million and one hundred million dollars. And my personal proposal is an existing threshold, which is the ultra high net worth individuals wealth threshold, with which is thirty million U.S. dollars per person. Uh, if I could make a, uh, a proposition where we put this threshold, I would propose $30 million. You still can afford uh, a lot of luxury, 
but you cannot buy <laughs> a football club, you cannot buy a TV station, and of course you cannot buy the whole parliament. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this seriously because um, in Austria we, we have one billionaire who offered to existing members of the parliament 100,000 euros per person if they ran over from an existing party to his party. And without having presented uh, his his party his to any election, he got uh, a party in the Austrian parliament. He bought it, literally, and it was legal. And um, Oh, my God. And I, I doubt that if he had only $30 million, then uh, he probably would not have been able to do that. Your ideas are refreshing and very different from what's in the world right now. What has been the response? What kind of feedback are you getting? What kind of response are you getting? Are you getting getting a lot of pushback or are you getting a lot of acceptance or is it somewhere in the middle? Um, it's both, um, very colorfully. <laughs> 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 but uh, maybe some uh, some telling reactions are the, amongst the fiercest um, pushbacks come from mainstream economists, from scientists, because understandably, I question their worldview, I question their paradigm, I question their narrative of the economy, and I'm offering a totally different narrative, but arguing that mine is, is uh, more legitimate than theirs. And of course, this is upsetting some of the main. <laughs> Economist. Of course, <laughs> but uh, at the same time, we have uh, we have created a first university chair economy for the common good at the Spanish university. We have introduced a university course at a university in Argentina, and we are organizing the third scientific conference on the economy for the common good together with other similar approaches. I, I would like to mention the donut economics approach. I would like to mention the degrowth or post-growth discourse. I would like to mention the social and solidarity economy approach. And I would like to mention just the last one, the circular economy approach. Uh, and we are organizing together with these other, let's say, sisters and brother models, <laughs> future fit economic models, uh, a scientific conference. And with this, I want to say there are many economists who are open-minded, who are progressive, who are heterodox in their own language, who, uh, who will integrate uh, these models into economic theory and uh, economic policy uh, recommendations. Of course, there there is also heavy pushback from uh, from very wealthy people who who do not want to question their lifestyle and their power, especially. But we are not focusing our attention on them. To be honest, we have uh, we have we need all our resources and energy and time to go through open doors, and many doors are open. We have now one thousand companies that are applying the Common Goal Balance Sheet voluntarily uh at yes that's a very important uh, most of them very small or tiny companies but some of them with a couple of thousands of employees at least so uh, at least some medium-sized companies that are applying the common goal balance sheet and uh, even better there are already uh, also cities and universities applying the same common goal balance sheet because different from some sustainability reporting tools it's not something tailor-made for businesses. It's it's uh, it's so universal. It's so general. These ethical questions: What are you doing about human dignity? What are you doing about sustainability? And what are you doing about participation? 
and democratic co-determination that any organization, no matter if city, university or company, um, can do this balance sheet. This uh, You can also call it a sustainability reporting tool, but we call it a common goal balance sheet. And, um, and more and more organizations in so far 25 uh, countries have implemented it. So I'm... Uh, I'm very optimistic as for the acceptance of this uh, model, of this narrative, and of our tools. We have 10 um, practical tools that are uh, progressively accepted by appliers. And this combination of a clear and convincing theoretical alternative and a practical and feasible practical tools, I think this is our strength. And so we have, uh, we need all our energy and resources to talk to those people that are interested in it, that are participating and engaging. And um, most of the time, I don't even have the time to look at those who are trying to push back or to uh, prevent our success. The All the organizations that you've just mentioned, they all seem to take a more holistic look at things. Is that is that correct? That's totally correct. Um, maybe one... Um, one reference back to the beginnings of our conversation, um, the economy came out of uh, philosophy. Adam Smith was a moral philosopher, and it, at his times, he he did not he did not teach pure economics <laughs> that only appeared uh, in the late nineteenth century. He taught uh, political economy, <laughs> and political economy was a sister of ethics. Uh, so. Ethics and politics, and today we would have to add ecology and economy, were one. Uh, and of course, it's a normative approach because uh, the economy is a, is, a, is a social science and a social practice, and it's always normative. There is no value-free economic science, and there is no value-free economic policy, and there is no value-free economic practice. It's always normative. Uh, it just can uh, express different values. It can be capitalistic. <laughs> then the norm is to make money or to increase uh, and accumulate capital. Or it can be more holistic, as you say. And then we take care of all stakeholders and we take care of uh, plants and animals and humans. And we uh, consider dignity and we uh, pay attention to justice and to solidarity and to democracy. And in this meaning, it is by definition... Uh, a holistic endeavor and science and practice. So if you had a magic wand, what one or two things would help you get your message out to more and more people? Well, one key game changer uh, would be economic education, that future business people, economists, and uh, decision makers um, learn something different in their studies and also in business schools. That would be a very, very powerful game changer. <laughs> and maybe a, another one is that a first country commissions the participatory development of a common good product, because this is a realistic one. I think we'll get this in the next 10 uh, to latest 20 years. And there will be a first common good product, uh, and that will be a role model. And all other countries will look at that country uh, and copy this uh, this prototype uh, because it will be very convincing uh, and it will make much more sense to most of the people in any country 
that uh, we do not measure our success by monetary GDP, but we measure our success by the level of the well-being and 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 the state of health uh, and the happiness of the people in this country and the stability of its ecosystems and the stability of its fundamental rights and the stability of peace. Um, so this is a um, a, a combine uh, something in between a wish and uh, and something that I'm convinced that will uh, will show up uh, still when I'm alive. Whoa, so much wisdom was shared in such a short period of time. Compromise is a tough concept to grasp for the simple reason that nobody gets everything they want. It's never, ever been something anyone wants to live with, especially when they firmly believe in win-lose. And that's why I found Christian's framework of first using pain as the barometer and then choosing the one that makes the least amount of pain so effective. Whether we agree 100% or not with his ideas, it's not important. What's more important in my view is that he get in front of more up-and-coming economists and business leaders quickly and find a participative country of some size to step up to the plate and model for the rest of the world that there is indeed a better way. And I say this because I think his 20-year deadline is too long. We need to do this in less than 10 years. So our role is not to criticize and disparage and discourage. Our role is to give Christian and people like him a chance to change minds. Our role is to encourage the changes no matter how uncomfortable they make us. And our role is to accept different ways of being and thinking. Because what we are living with today are all the unintended consequences of the collective actions that we have all taken over the last 10 or 20 decades. We are long past a do-over. The only thing we can do now is a do-better. We don't have the time to figure out what kind of do-better we should do. The only option we have now is to do a do-better for the common good or the highest good for all.